0: You're listening to The Strong Towns Podcast.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Strong Towns Podcast. Chuck is in the middle of a really busy few weeks of travel, but you're still going to hear from him today. In a minute, we'll be sharing the audio from a recent webcast with renowned walkability expert Jeff Speck. But before that, I just want to remind everyone that there's still time to nominate your town to participate in the Strongest Town Contest. We want to feature as many amazing towns as we can, and our focus this year is really on communities that are working to become strong, not places that are perfect already. Because, spoiler alert, those towns don't exist anyway. So head to strongtowns.org/strongesttown to nominate your city. Please do that by February 25th in order to be considered for the contest. All right, let's get to the episode. Here's Chuck Marone's conversation with Jeff Speck.
0: My name's Chuck Marone. Uh, I've got Jeff Speck here with me. We're going to talk about cities. We're going to talk about walkability. Uh, I'm going to ask you some questions about autonomous vehicles. We're going to spend the first uh, okay little bit of time here. I've got some questions for you. I want to ask to kind of set the stage, but the, we pitched this whole thing as a way for people to ask you questions. So I'll let participants know in the bottom of your screen, there's a little uh, Q and a button. If you go to that and you want to, you know, enter a question for Jeff, put your question in there, uh, here in about 15 minutes, I will get to those and I will do my best to ask Jeff a question and interpret it and, and follow up on it. and, and hold him accountable so he answers all your really tough questions. Jeff likes brutally difficult questions, so don't hold back. Make them tough. Um, Jeff, welcome to, uh, welcome to Strongtown's uh, webcast. Thanks so much for doing this.
1: Thanks for having me, Chuck. And, of course, uh, we go back a long way, but I've enjoyed your, I've enjoyed your, your media, meteoric rise with uh, <laughs> With great pleasure over the years.
0: Well, whatever success that I have experienced or, or will experience, I, I owe uh, quite a debt to you uh, and and some others who have inspired me greatly. I, I, I've told you before, and I'll say it again, uh, Suburban Nation, it, it came to me at exactly the right time in my life when I was searching for answers. And it uh, it, it filled in so many blanks I had and really intellectually put me in a a different frame of mind so i i owe a debt to you and andres and and so many other people so thank you
1: well i don't i don't know we've had this conversation but the uh since our last conversation was lost and destroyed anyway uh
0: (laughs) it's somewhere we're searching for it (laughs)
1: okay um but the experience you know about about once a conference someone will come up to me and say hey thank you uh, it's because of suburbanation that I'm a city planner or whatever. And first I yeah. apologize. Yeah. Um, but then I, I, I tell them the story. Uh, you know, the experience you had Chuck, when you first read it was the experience I had in 1987 or eight, when I first heard Andre Stwani give that towns versus sprawl talk. Yeah. And, um, and hearing that talk just kind of dropped the scales from my eyes. And, you know, and it was, first of all, it was like the best story I'd ever heard. Like it made so much sense, um, that, right. you know, it explained things that I had, had always kind of understood viscerally, but never, uh, intellectually. And, um, and then I said, oh my God, this has to be a book. And it took, it took like another decade, but we made a book out of it. <laughs> um, I mean, right. it literally took, it literally took more than a decade from that moment. But, um, but you know, the, 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 your gratitude to me is mar- is matched by my gratitude to Andres and Liz, who really turned me on to the same subject matter.
0: Well, we're all in a uh, we're we're all standing on each other's shoulders in a way. So I I, I feel very humbled by it all. Um, l- let me let me ask you. You you published Walkable City what four years five years ago? Um,
1: actually, um, uh, I, 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 almost uh, I guess it'd be five and a half years ago.
0: Okay. This was a book that I think, well, let me put it this way. I think it was overdue. I think people were hungry for it. I also think that it marked kind of a sea change in the way people started to talk about walkability. I want to give you an, an opportunity to talk about kind of the aftermath of that book. What, what have you seen change in our dialogue, in the way we talk about walkability, and, and what have you seen change on the ground post-publishing yeah. uh, of that book?
1: I mean, I'd be curious in your. I'd be curious for your what you meant by what you just said, but but for me, it was more of a sea change in how we talk about design. So okay. I, I'm uh,
0: fine with that. I'm fine with that aspect of it.
1: Yeah, because um, the the you know, there's a lot of if I can say, there's a lot of great stuff in Walkable City um, that is important to read on its own. But probably the key accomplishment of that book was to reframe the whole argument. Um, in terms that the average person could really connect with, right. So, um, you know, we used to we used to call what we did um, neo-traditional town planning, and then we called it new urbanism, and we've um, you know always had plenty of kind of urban design or planning explanations for the work that we're doing that may or may not have gone over the heads of different people or just failed to interest them in the work we were doing. But by reframing it within the rubric of walkability, suddenly it was accessible. It was relatable um, and it was easy to communicate. Um, And I think, you know, I I look back, I'm really grateful I chose that title uh, and that orientation, Um, but probably the key intellectual leap, which, you know, was not mine alone, was to understand that it was all frameable in terms of of the walkable city, and that um, everything that we want to do in terms of better city planning, better regional planning, better urban design, and better architecture could actually be explained uh, in those terms.
0: Yeah, I I feel like in a way, and I'll say this as like a a physics geek, someone who has always loved like the deep physics, there's something refreshing about Stephen Hawking and the fact that he can take quantum physics and, and make it readable, I have myself been able to give your book to many, many laymen, many people who have no, you know, no urban planning experience, no, you know, deep background in design. They've taken it and said, this is profound. And and it's really mattered to them. I'm I'm assuming that was your intent.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's nice to hear that. Uh, And, uh, you know, the goal for me has always been, and it even happened with suburban nation, um, which you know, obviously, if you heard Andres or Liz talk about those same issues, it was immediately accessible and relatable. Um, but it's always been, you know, the unstated and kind of un, un, kind of the unconscious goal of my career to popularize and uh, promulgate these issues um, beyond the elite conversation of people who are trained in design you know my undergraduate my undergraduate thesis in architecture well it was it was art history but in architecture was about the distinction between popular taste and professional taste in architecture and I've always been fascinated I've always been fascinated by this wall that seems to exist between um, the professionals and the general public and I've always been super super interested uh, perhaps because I didn't really fit in as a young kid I've always been super interested in um, uh, out, reaching out and having a, a, a conversation with, with everybody, not just with a little click.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's fantastic. I'd love to read that, actually. Um, tell us a, a few of the things that you see happening right now in, in cities. Some of, the, some of the innovative stuff that you're witnessing, maybe that you're taking part in, Uh, I'd like to give people uh, just kind of a a broad overview of what you think is the cutting edge today, in terms of walkability and and building cities that are are safe and accessible for people.
1: So, it has been amazing if you look back, and and you know I'm really a second generation new urbanist, but if you look back at at how things were, you know, in the late '80s, and and you know I joined DPZ for a decade and in 1993 um, compared to how they are now and certainly compared to how they were even when the movement started, but particularly just in my own personal experience, um, the landscape that meets us, and I'm speaking, I guess, metaphorically more than physically, but the landscape that meets us when we arrive in cities to do the work that we do is completely changed. The intellectual landscape, the social um, approach, and and, and I, I'm sure there are places uh, in America, which haven't advanced at all and are still completely backwards <laughs> in these uh, right. regarding these issues, um, where the um, you know the car culture still completely dominates and the automotive hordes are not to be thwarted in any way. But most places where we go, we get just a completely different reception. You know, we we've been arguing for the we've gotten better, and our uh, approach has has reformed over the years in certain subtle and not so subtle ways kind of most visibly as applies to say bicycles and bicycle use um but we've been trying to sell the same stuff i should say build the same stuff for for decades many decades in, in my mentor's case um and when you show up in places to do it now there is a general a probably something's already been done there You know, there's probably an example that's hopefully pretty good that has already established a willingness for people to do more. Um, And B, whether or not there's something there already, everyone, uh, at least in the public discourse who comes out, not everyone, but there seems to be a a majority of people participating in the public process who who want this stuff that a few decades ago they didn't necessarily, uh, they weren't necessarily prepared to say that they wanted.
0: I heard Andres once say, you'd spend 80% of your budget just teaching people. Oh, absolutely. You know, gotta, yeah. And you're yeah, saying and that that's changed.
1: Teaching's a nice word for it. I mean, you know, he used to say, uh, you know, the fee for this project is 40 grand, but if there's a public process, it's 200. And <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't that we were trying to avoid the public process, but it was an acknowledgement that the most expensive part of planning necessarily... Um, it's unavoidable, but the most expensive part of planning is the public process and bringing people into the fold. But I was in D.C. last weekend and I was having drinks with a number of urbanists, and Jeff Anderson was there, who's the head of um, uh, Smart Growth America. Yep. And uh, he reminded me of how much we had accomplished um, in his delight at experiencing, you know, with someone advocating for smart growth, which is considerably more sophisticated in some ways, you know, it's at the regional scale, rather than just... Um, talking about individual neighborhoods, uh, that, that he feels, and I would agree, that the intellectual battles have been won. Um, uh, I used to say after um, suburbanation that, that we, we were kind of like, you know, the, 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 the creation of the built environment in America was kind of like this massive cruise ship that was headed for an iceberg, uh, not yet melted, and the, yes. uh, the captain had given the command to turn the ship around. Right? Because the leadership of the architectural urban design planning real estate development uh, uh, industries and probably some others as well all under i should say you know government leadership transit oriented or transportation leadership all understood that um, that neighborhood based design smart growth, new urbanism were the right solution and and that war had been won, uh, but the ship still hadn towards the iceberg and I would say right. The ship is still headed towards the iceberg, but now um, everyone on board, not just the captain, um, is starting to uh, uh, wish it wasn't and try to do things to change that. The other big realization I've had over the years, and I share this with Jeff, but I think he had the same impression, is that um, I used to hope that we could stop sprawl. Like, I think when I wrote those words on the page in Suburban Nation, you know, many of which were Andres and Liz's, but when I wrote those words down, It was with the goal of slowing and stopping the sprawl engine and thinking it was possible. Right, right. And then subsequently, when the Smart Growth Manual came out closer to 2010, that was written at a time when we were experiencing this huge breather. Uh, There was almost no construction. And the thought was perhaps, and I think we said that in the book, perhaps this hiatus was an opportunity, was the opportunity we needed to recognize our error, um, move beyond the fact that it was just a banking error and realize that it was a whole form and mode and style of investment error, um, and come back to building properly and leave it all behind. But I think by that point, that was a it was almost a rhetorical hope, <laughs> and less of a actual um, belief that that was possible. But I have to say that I've reached the point now. This is going to sound really horrible, and probably in terms of climate change, um, it is horrible. That I don't feel like, you know, I don't feel like stopping sprawl is possible. Period. My goal is no longer to stop sprawl. My goal, along with I think many of my colleagues, is to create more opportunities for people who wish to not have the auto dependent lifestyle to be able to find that lifestyle near them and in an attainably priced way. Yeah. And, and, and so I think, I think for, I think for most new urbanists now, the question isn't to sprawl or not to sprawl it's um, how many places can we reform to be more walkable, and, and, and how many new places can we build? Cause the population is, is growing um, where people can live in a more walkable way.
0: What What, what is that shift from? I mean, I, cause I, I have to tell you, I, I'm in that same camp. I think 10 years ago, I wanted to kill this stuff. Like I, I wanted it dead. And now I'm more of like, I mean, I was in North Dakota this week and I met with the governor and I said, you're not going to stop this. You know, just try to diminish it and, and, and let it burn out. Like really get something good going over here and you'll generate more demand for it are, are we just older and more pragmatic or is this just uh you know well now the wind's more at our back or what is the deal
1: so i think the first thing to, to acknowledge in your you know that that your meeting with the governor makes me concerned about is um we we still must well we're not going to kill sprawl we still have to do everything we can to eliminate all the hidden subsidies that support sprawl uh when i was the national number for the arts i i helped create the governor's institute on community design which still exists and and which tries to teach that lesson to state leadership um but the fact is that sprawl's subsidies still are full bore you know from all the oil and gas subsidies to highway subsidies to everything else that's still out there um one of the big reasons why we can't stop sprawl, it's not just habit, it's just the ongoing subsidization of that form of land, of land settlement. So um, I think before we move on, uh, that needs to be mentioned. Right. Uh, I think the biggest driver of the change, and I, I talk about this in Walkable City, and I, I learned most of it from Chris Leinberger, uh, the economist, but I think the principal driver behind the refocus on more walkable places is demographics. And, um, you know, we've gone from a country in which the majority of the households were kind of nuclear households with parents and children and um, one one sort of uh, lifestyle to a um, a country in which I believe now only 22 percent of families are traditional families or 22 percent of households are two parents with, with a child or children, um, while 66 percent of our housing stock is single family houses. So you have this tremendous disconnection between it's a mismatch between supply and demand. And Chris Leinberger pointed out that, you know, it's, it's a few things it's, it's those demographics. It's also the fact that um, what has each generation kind of, what is their ideal image of quality of life been? And uh, you know, how we were raised on, well, you're a little younger than me, but my generation was raised. Not too much, man. (laughs) My generation was raised on suburban shows, you know, like, like Happy Days and um, Partridge Family and Brady Bunch. And uh, the current, you know, millennial generation was raised on um, Friends and Sex in the City and How I Met Your Mother and all these urban shows. And, right. and the, the polling, this polling is a, a number of years old now, but the polling of millennials, you know, seven years ago was that uh, 77% of them said they planned to live in America's urban cores. Um, but what you have now is this, you know, you have this demographic condition where you have the, the millennials and the baby boomers and, and the both of those are in a place in their lives now where they have no use. They don't have much use for the big single family house with the big yard and the um, you know, big interior to clean and um, or the better schools, frankly, which drove a lot of people to the suburbs and what they want is convenience. They don't want to be auto dependent because they might lose the ability to drive. And then of course the, the millennials um, you know, they aren't yet thinking about their. Well, they're just now beginning to think about their situation with with children. Um, but that that um, you know, their housing choices are principally based around a lifestyle image, which is very very urban in in, in ideal.
0: Right, right. I'm going to switch over to questions now. Uh, okay. We have uh, almost 250 people. Uh, joining us here, if any of you would like to ask Jeff a question, it's your turn. Uh, there's 16 of them lined up here. I told you you might get some technical ones, Jeff. The first one uh, is from Dan Bourbon. Dan wants to know what population density is required to support a walkable commercial center. Uh, is, is, there an, is there a magic number that we can spec, please?
1: Not Dan Burden.
0: No, not Dan Burden. Not, not the
1: famous Dan Burden. Dan no. um, I don't think there's any one number that we would talk about. Um, I, I think if, if, you're, uh, if you're creating a, <coughs> a, a commercial center that has a corner store and a number of other things, these days you need to look at both the uh, existing population around it, and frankly, in, in most of America, how many cars are driving by. Right. I mean, the retail sure, well, right. experts like Bob Gibbs are going to ask for the car count before they ask you for the population density. When you're designing a new neighborhood that's um, kind of standalone, you probably need about a thousand households. This is shocking, but you probably need about a thousand households just just to support a corner store, which is why often that corner store can and should be uh, subsidized, frankly, by the developer. Um, right. You know, there's there's given that most people will walk five or 10 minutes max to that sort of thing um, and that you want about a thousand households, that would suggest a population density um, of perhaps five or six units per acre. You have to do the math, but I'm thinking about, you know, a traditional neighborhood with a fair amount of open space. And of course, you know, only half, half the property actually privately developed because the rest is streets and parks and other stuff. Um, You know, at a traditional suburban density of five units per acre, if you have some apartments um, you know, towards the center and larger houses towards the edge, um, that might be, um, I guess I can do the math, um, you know, in my experience, that's been about a thousand households or a little bit less. Um, right. That's enough for a corner store. Um, the, the, the simple answer to the question is the more density you have, the, the more retail you can have, and it's a sliding scale.
0: Right. Right. I, it's funny because years ago I was up in this very small town in Minnesota, population about 850, and I was talking to some of the old timers, and they told me all the businesses that used to be in that town uh, back in the 60s, right before people you know would drive 40 miles to the grocery store, which is pretty common in this part of the world. And I was astounded because they had a full a full city there with everything that you would need. Yeah. Uh, including grocery and and uh, you know hardware store and shoe repair and clothes and all this, so yeah, I th- I think uh, I, I I think we've we we've, we've not adjusted our minds to what's possible in some ways.
1: Well, but, you know, this um, num- those those numbers and the current numbers are in the context of um, whether there was alternatives. Right. Exactly. So, exactly. You know, the yeah, it was a captured
0: market. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, the 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 local downtowns have been replaced in many cases by regional downtowns, which have been replaced by big boxes, which have been replaced by Amazon. Um, And so, uh, you know, most of the clients I work with these days who want to have a a vital downtown uh, from scratch are actually starting by building a category killer town center that will be so attractive and incredible that it'll put the last retail model out of business – and then, of course, the big, um, the, what makes it urban is that it's not just that. It also has a ton of apartments, uh, a ton, ton of office. And essentially what you're doing is you're creating a city again.
0: From scratch, right. Um, Joe Sullivan wants to know, do you think bus rapid transit can be a viable transit option instead of light rail? And he, and he cites specifically Tampa Bay, which does not have a, a transit system at all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What's your opinion?
1: Um, the, the answer is yes. And there's plenty yeah. of examples around the world uh, to study that. Uh, the best being like in South America and Curitiba, Brazil, and other places like that, where there are very effective uh, bus rapid transit systems. The, the main thing I learned, not the main, I learned so much from, um, from Jarrett Walker, you know, human transit. Yeah. Me too, and yeah. One of the things I, he reminded me that I learned recently um, is that the best approach to transit design is to be completely, what's the word, completely uh, Catholic or uh, um, to, have no, to have no particular focus on technology. Sure. That what matters is how many people you're moving with what frequency uh, and how quick the transfers are through your, and how they're able to get to different places in your in your urban network, and and if you get that right, it really doesn't matter whether there's a rail under the vehicle uh, or or it's a bus. Okay. The issue with BRT, I would say, is theoretically it's completely viable as an alternative to train to trains. Um, practically speaking, in the U.S., many municipalities um, or counties, et cetera, are reluctant to give it the dedicated road space that allows it to function properly so i always ask is there really an r in your brt right right it's just
0: bt yeah
1: the things that make it rapid are the hardest things to get and there are a number of brt systems that are really just just bt um because they haven't gotten the dedicated roadway and they're fighting you know they're fighting Uh, cars for road space and they're stuck in the same traffic the cars are in so there's really no benefit to taking it
0: spencer wants to know uh what successes can you share regarding successful implementation of safe ped crossings bike ped crossings in the high density neighborhoods where a vast majority and he capitalizes vast majority of residents aren't involved aren't politically involved so so how do you make change Uh, in doing some of these technical things when, you know, people are not involved in the process as it's set up?
1: Well, I mean, I I think what he's suggesting is he's either, he's doing one of two things. He's either, he's either picking on his current process in his community, which where they've done a really bad job of involving people, uh, or he's dealing with the common circumstance where the the community and the planners make a real effort to involve people, but no one shows up. Right. (laughs) And I would say, I would say in either case, um, how many people really aren't uh, are involved um, doesn't matter if you get the right outcome, and the right, the right outcome, of course, is is improve is improved facilities. But that's like a it's like a four part question, and I, uh, you know, uh, one part is how important. I only is read involved.
0: you. I only read you one paragraph of six. Okay. So there's yeah, <laughs> a agree. lot to his question.
1: The real question <laughs> is is how important is public involvement. Uh, but, but I would, I would turn to the other part of the question, which is, um, name some success stories. And I was blown away today because, um, I, I, but I'm working on a new book, which I'll talk to you about. I pretty much finished it. And, um, every now and then you read a news article you're like, Oh, I have to change my book because this is so important. It has to go in there. (laughs) And, um, and I was reminded, the New York Times recently wrote a, an article about Queens Boulevard in Queens, New York, that from 1990 to 2014 lost 186 humans, 186 people were killed. That's one every seven weeks on right. the street over a quarter century. And they finally, by the way, 138 of those were pedestrians. And they finally invested $4 million, which, by the way, values each human life at about 20 grand.
0: Right, right.
1: $4 million in 2014 in better crosswalks. They put in bike facilities and other stuff, and they haven't had a death since. And, you know, I don't know what the public process was. I honestly don't care. What matters is, and this this is an issue in many of the cities I go to, like, I don't need someone to tell me, uh, I mean, public process is fantastic and necessary for finding what you need to fix. But in terms of how to fix an intersection, you know, I don't need someone to tell me how to stripe that. It's, there's a technical solution for doing that properly and signalizing it properly. Um, and with or without a public process, if you do that right, you will save lives. And it's amazing the degree to which um, we're not doing that in yes. so many communities when, when a very limited investment would save Many lives.
0: Jared Ferringer, he wants to know about uh, converting one ways to two ways. How do we convince municipalities to to do that?
1: Wow. Okay. So the one thing I'm accused of do, of doing, it, that's rubber stamp when I go <laughs> when I go from yeah. city to city. The one thing that people say, you just do this everywhere because I do do it almost everywhere is yeah. the conversion of of multi-lane one-way systems that were once two-way back to, back to two-way. And we call it reversion. We don't call it conversion because we want to remind people that they right. used to be two-way. Um, and, you know, so let me take a little break to tell you that my book, which I just completed, uh, that unfortunately isn't coming out until the fall, um, is called Walkable City Rules. It's 101 Steps to making better places, and it's each step is like two pages with a rule and then maybe a picture and a caption and then an explanation of what you need to do. And I think four of those rules are about convincing people and then successfully converting um, one-way systems back to two-way. The, the way that you convince them is by showing them in community after community how how it's had a positive impact. And there's no longer any dispute. You know, there had been for some while before much data was collected, but um, there's very clear data now that some of it, actually a bunch of it's in my book, Walkable City, which of course is already available. There'll be a lot more in this next book, Um, but there's every piece of evidence to suggest that collisions drop, injury crashes drop precipitously, uh, crime drops, uh, businesses do better, real estate becomes more valuable when you revert these streets for the simple reason that, um, that they're currently functioning a bit like highways. You know, when you, when you have multiple lanes going in the same direction, it looks and feels like a, right, like a half of a highway. And, exactly. um, and, you know, as Andres once said, um, you know, streets generate real estate value and, and highways sunder real estate value. And the more a street looks like a highway, the more you're going to, to sunder that community. Um, mm-hmm. There's plenty of data about all the stores that closed when the one-ways came in. There's a growing amount of data about stores that open when the, when the two-ways come in. Um, but probably the most significant conversation to have is about life safety and, and, and those distinctions. So um, there's a bunch of data in Walkable Sea. There's more uh, in, my, in my upcoming book. But um, uh, the, the, you know, the best thing is to, to do is to cite positive examples.
0: I um, think it's hard on that one, Jeff. Is there a way to hack that? Like, yeah, I think of like Mike Lydon stuff, where he's out, uh, you know, putting in temporary crosswalks and using straw bales to show what it would look like. I, I've, I've thought like we've got to be able to do that on some of these conversions. Have you ever seen that done?
1: I would think tactical urbanizing all of Mike Lydon a one way to two way would be very technically complex. Because, <laughs> it, it would.
0: It, that's what I was thinking too.
1: <laughs> yeah, but, but I, I could imagine, let, let's, say you've got a, let's say you've got a two-way, uh, you've got a pair of one-ways, and you pretend that one of them has to be closed for, for a street repair, and so you route traffic on, on the other one uh, with a lot of cones and probably people directing the traffic. But no, I don't think there's an easy hack for that. Um, I, I do know that um, even communities that were very reluctant to do it, like Davenport, Iowa, um, where we recommended it a long time ago. Um, they've slowly started doing it street by street and having only positive outcomes. The, the, the place I would point people to right now, I I guess I'd point them to places. I'd point them to Oklahoma city where we did a project where, I mean, they had an entirely, well, their, their downtown core, 40 blocks was half one way. Um, and we converted it all to two way, and uh, they had a lot of money, so they rebuilt the whole thing with oil and gas money, right. and um, it's, it's functioned yeah. it's functioned wonderfully. Um, it's best understood in the context of what it was like before, though, because if you go to Oklahoma City from, say, uh, you know Savannah, it will not look very walkable. But you have to know what it was like before. Right. Um, but we, I just did a plan with Nelson Nygaard about three years ago for new Albany, Indiana, which is a city right by Louisville. And, um, we literally, they, to their credit, they converted about three miles of streets in their downtown core from one way to two way reverted, um, in a, in a summer. Yeah. Uh, And another two miles they gave road diets to. And, um, it's, you know, the, the, the world didn't come to an end. There has not been a traffic nightmare. And everyone tells you it just feels a lot safer. So there's there's some really good recent examples to point to.
0: I've got a question here from George uh, Schricker. He wants to know about the buttons you have to press to get a walk sign. He, he says, why do we have to push these buttons? It drives me crazy. W- why? why? I mean, I, I think I understand why they came about, but, but why do they persist today? Why is this an acceptable thing?
1: First of all, um, I think 85% of them do nothing. I mean, that's technically studies have been done. Um, that doesn't mean that it was was introduced cynically. Uh, most of them once did something, but I think about 85% of them now do nothing. And there's actually a point in my upcoming book that's, you know, a whole section dedicated to these push buttons and, has all this data, which I don't have in front of me. Um, there are those occasional ones that work. I'm sitting next to my window here. Out my window is in the middle of Beacon Street in Brookline, Massachusetts, is the Green Line T, the train. The, the streetcar. Someone in their wisdom realized that people sprint across this wide, pretty wide street to get to the train when they see it. And they put a push button in front of my house that the minute you hit it, the light turns yellow.
0: Okay. And wow.
1: Yeah. Red. I mean, the light turns yellow the minute you hit it, so within two seconds, it's a it's a red light, and you can cross instantaneously. That's a push button that works um, and should be used. the The majority of push buttons exist in places where the, um, you know, the the traffic engineers who think only about cars and not about other forms of transportation like walking um, have been allowed to dominate the environment. And I like to say, you know, a pedestrian should never have to ask for the light or for a light, right? The, the, you know, there are unusual places where it's a state highway and no one ever walks except for the, uh, you know, a few pedestrians occasionally. And there it makes sense in, in terms of traffic control, given how few pedestrians there are to, uh, request, you know, to, to put in the, the push button for the request. But if an intersection is regularly visited by humans on foot, um, there's really no point in it. And the trend, the trend in those cities that understand it, um, is to eliminate those lights. And, and I would say more and more cities that I go to, they say, oh yeah, we, we we're getting rid of them. Or what they do is they just turn them off, but they're still there and people are still pushing them, which is, press them. yeah. obviously there's another step. We need like a universal cap that sits on top of the push button yeah. that just says, yeah, you yeah. know, this isn't, this isn't working because, um, in fact most places where you see the push buttons uh have a a more proper solution which is the uh the standard what we call concurrent signalization right concurrent signalization where the that where the if you're crossing this way you get the you get the walk signal when the car is going this way get the drive signal now the latest version of course is called the lpi the lead pedestrian indicator where you get the walk signal three to five seconds usually about three seconds D.C. is full of them. New York's introducing a bunch um, where you get the walk before the cars get the green. And that way you advance and you're able to claim the crosswalk before the cars start to try to turn through it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there are still cities and, and this is how it was in New Albany, Indiana, where actually that you would never get the you would never get the walk sign mm-hmm. without pushing the button. And that's simply a. Um, you know, I, I'm not telling you it's easy to overcome, but it's a it's a conversation, a simple conversation to have at the city level to say, is this the signal that we want to be sending to all pedestrians that they're second-class citizens and, in fact, um, their environment doesn't belong to them?
0: It seems like a technical change that we can make without spending a lot of money that would have a huge impact in a lot of places.
1: Well, you know, it's the sort of thing that was introduced with zero public process and you'd like to be able to remove it with zero public process.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> True. Right. Um, um Okay, David Thurlow wants to know about uh, – his question is really about ride-hailing services. So let me see. Do you, do you see the growth of ride purchasing as helpful or as harmful? And he's really talking about, you know, helpful in terms of reducing private vehicle ownership or harmful uh, to mass transit, active transportation. So let's, let's not focus on AVs at this point. Let's just focus on, like, Uber and Lyft and ride-hailing.
1: Good so I was asked to speak, I was asked to speak uh, at Uber. Oh, really? And, oh, wow. And, and I did. Okay. And I, but before I did, I said, you know, I'm, I'll be friendly, but it's not going to be, you're not going to like it. Like, right. it's not going to be good news. And then, <laughs> and, like I did before And they were my, good with
0: that. They were good well, with that. They still invited yeah,
1: you. I have to say, the people at Uber who I met were fantastic people, and they were very mm-hmm. welcoming. And, and not, they weren't just fantastic people. They were, uh, you know, they were kind of the bright and bushy-tailed younger people who want to make a positive difference in the world. And I may have ruined their day, but the the um, the, the the issue with ride hailing is that if you look into it, as I did further in preparation for this talk, you keep finding bad thing after bad thing. Right, seventy percent of the, or I think it's two thirds of the of the moving violations in San Francisco surrounding. Um, uh, 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 what was the what was the, it was a certain type of moving violation basically nuisance moving violations in San Francisco 70% of them are committed by riot, by ride hailing no kidding but, really but but <laughs> that's kind of like the anecdotal uh stuff here's the technical stuff and and I talked to this guy named Alejandro hanau and Alejandro hanau has this amazing PhD paper that I discovered on Streets blog where he was earning his PhD in transportation analysis while serving intentionally as an uber and lyft driver for a year and everyone he rode around he gave a questionnaire to and most of them filled it out and based on their responses to the questionnaires and to his and, and and his own experience as a driver here's some of the data and i'm gonna i'm gonna get a little bit wrong because i don't have it in front of me first of all fully a third of the trips were people who would have otherwise walked biked or taken transit. So you're actually removing people from more healthy uh, ways of getting around and contributing to traffic in the road. Uh, Not anecdotally, but as an aside to that, the experience in those cities which are studying it, like New York and more recently Boston, is very clear that ride hailing services are undermining transit ridership and putting more people on the street. Secondarily, for every a hundred miles that he drove, he had to drive 160 miles. Right. So he's someone who deadheaded immediately and instantly. He didn't cruise around looking for opportunity. He made it, you know, to be as conservative as possible. Whenever he finished a ride, he would pull over and wait. And he found that it was 160 miles for every 160 passenger miles. Um, Contrast that to the claims now being minutely substantiated that people are going to start getting rid of their cars. My question is, are people going to get rid of 60% of their cars (laughs) or that's not the number. Is there going to be a commensurate reduction in car ownership to make up for the 60% of additional driving that's happening because of all the scooting around getting from passenger to passenger. Also, why is it better having fewer cars? Let's think about this. What really matters in terms of pollution in the construction of the car and in the use of the car is simply how many miles are cars driving. The principal contribution to climate change, pollution, everything else that, that you care about with cars or even congestion, it's not how many people own cars, it's how many miles cars are being driven. Switching from a, switch, switching from a personal family car to a, a lift car doesn't mean all of a sudden the car can go twice as far before you have to replace it with another car, right? In fact, people's right. desires for newer cars probably mean there's more cars being manufactured. Um, so the, the, the slight reduction in auto ownership, to my um, understanding, doesn't begin. It would have to be incredibly huge, remarkable, a whole societal shift, in car ownership for it to make up for the fact that there's all these other cars on the road. Uh, sorry, all these additional miles being driven uh, in between trips. Additionally, he, he noted to me in a phone conversation that in South America and other cities, tons of people who couldn't otherwise own cars are using uh, being a Lyft or uh, Uber driver as a um, way to get a car.
0: A way to pay for it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So what you have is a tremendous uptick in car purchases of people who would not otherwise have one, but they want to have a car, so they become a Lyft or Uber driver, get the car, and then they drive themselves and others all over the place. So these issues and others all add up to um, uh, you know, nothing really good, I think, coming, or I should say a net negative coming out of car share. And we all feel so virtuous when we use it. And I'm just trying to get over that because it's not.
0: Well, you you wrote a really great piece, uh, the ten rules about automatic, uh, automated vehicles, and I, I want you to talk about one specific part of that, being the induced demand aspect, uh, and and also maybe tie it into the geometry. There's a there's a sense that if we go to automatic you know, to automated vehicles, it's going to reduce congestion. Uh, it's going to allow people to get places more quickly. Uh, it's going to cut greenhouse gases. I, yeah. I, 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 I tend to be the curmudgeon on this, and, and I hear you being the curmudgeon a little bit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's, it's, I'm, I'm taking some of your curmudgeon uh, uh, work. <laughs> um, I would direct your, uh, our, our 249 participants to my website, which is jeffspeck.com. And uh, on that website, there's a couple of videos, one of which, it's at the bottom, it shows uh, people in an auto- autonomous vehicle. And it's my talk about autonomous vehicles. Um, But there's also... um, No, I guess that's the main... Yeah, that's the main resource I would send them to. Uh, You can also find it just by uh, Googling Jeff Speck's CNU lecture. There's actually a better version. This is why I was thinking... There's a better version of that talk that I gave at the CNU, uh, Congress for New Urbanism, Jeff Speck's CNU lecture, autonomous, and you'll find it. Um, So like everything else, Chuck, when... when, uh, I, I well I was presented with an opportunity to talk about uh, autonomous vehicles, which is funny because um, I, I was given a plenary at the U.S. Conference of Mayors, which is such an incredible opportunity. Uh, and I got the phone call like three weeks before the plenary, where I, it was the typical phone call where I knew it was going to fall through. And it was Mayor Cornett, who's the president of the Conference of Mayors, um, who said to me, Jeff. Uh, you still get to do the plenary I'm like okay and he said oh, all the mayors want to hear about I thought I was going to give one of, get to give one of my great talks about why walkability is so important and how to achieve right. it in your city and he said the mayors just want to hear about autonomous vehicles I'm like oh damn um so I did what I used to do when presented with a new subject I need to be an expert on which is I spoke to the people who know the most about it um and particularly, I talked to Jarrett Walker of Human Transit, and I talked to Paul Moore, who's one of the really smart uh, folks at Nelson Nygaard Transportation Planning, and um, their feelings kind of dovetail with my feelings and, and, you know, what technical data we have about how these things are expected to function. Um, the first thing, just because it's popping into my mind first, I will remind people of Jarrett Walker's conversation that you asked about regarding geometry. Right. Right. Jared always says, you know, you can't beat geometry. I forget his term that's more catchy than this, but you just can't beat geometry. The fact that a, you know, that an L train in New York City carries two thousand people, one L train, um, and even if you're carpooling, you're not coming close with with uh, folks in cars. Five hundred um,
0: cars. Yeah, if you pack yeah. four in each of them. Yeah,
1: <clears throat> and and think about the amount of space that it takes. And, and the fact is that in, in cities which have no and anticipate no traffic congestion, in which space within streets is not uh, contested, there it, it does seem reasonable to me that autonomous vehicles could replace transit, right? Because transit isn't serving much of a function in those, uh, is, is not economically working in those places anyway. If you're in a city <clears throat> that has if you're in Waterloo, Iowa, maybe, uh, you could imagine replacing your transit system with, with AVs. But anywhere denser than that, even, even you know Iowa City, um, you're going to have a real congestion problem if you take those people out of the buses they're in uh, and put them into autonomous vehicles, even if they're multi-person and even if they're swarming. So if you just do the math on the geometry, that's the issue. But the biggest issue is, as it always is with traffic, the concept of induced demand. And what the autonomous vehicles promise to do is to dramatically reduce the cost of driving in two important ways, right? One, the cost, and two, the time cost, which is huge. When you think about the difference between being um, stuck behind the wheel and being able to actually sit in a lovely environment with a desk or uh, you know an opportunity to watch cat videos, whatever, um, and get other stuff done and the the princip- because the principal constraint to drive this is what in- the whole in- induced demand discussion is, is that because the principal constraint to driving is congestion anything you can do or sorry it's not congestion it's it's time wasted in traffic born of congestion right right so because time wasted in traffic is the principal thing that stops people from driving anyone who's thought about it realizes that when you reduce the cost, not just in money, but in time of driving, you're going to have so many more vehicles on the road to make, it'll make up for the swarming, make up for all the other things that are imagined. Um, And of course it'll be an inducement to sprawl as well, because there's now a, even more uh, affordable way to, uh, to get to a a little dacha out in the countryside, you know, somewhere. Um, But the, the, um, you know, I'm reminded of a charrette that we did in, in Jakarta when I was at, at DPZ. And our hotel was about a block from our studio, and they took us there in helicopter. <laughs> and the reason they took us there in a helicopter is because it would have literally taken an hour each way to go that one block uh-huh. on the street. Because why? The street was full of two different types of people. It was full of poor people... Who, whose time was not valued highly, who, you know, who actually could lose a couple hours and it wouldn't impact their bottom line. And it was full of rich people in limousines who, who A, can sit and get work done, and B, have the status of sitting in their limousine, which is a whole other thing that's you know driven car culture in this country um, and around the world. So um, So the prediction among those who study it is that the reduced cost and the reduced time cost will cause a ton of induced demand. And then the question, which I think you know, I've already slightly answered today, in my opinion, and what I've learned from others, is that the increase in demand will far outweigh the increase in efficiency that these cars provide. But one of the biggest questions I have is, you know, <laughs> In America, our cities haven't even shown the capacity to introduce something as simple and smart as congestion pricing. You know, not even New York right. managed to introduce congestion pricing. In Europe, you have zona blues and, and uh, pedestrian-only zones and the stuff they're doing in Barcelona with these super blocks where there's very little dra- driving within the block. And um, there's been a kind of a top-down, more social democratic um, approach where people tell people what to do with their cars. That never happens in America. We never tell anyone what to do with their cars. So what's going to happen is as soon as these cars are available, and I think it's going to be a while, but as soon as these cars are available, the richer Americans are going to buy them and they're going to you know, use them the way they want to use them. Um, no one's going to tell them that they have to swarm. No one's going to make sure that you know, the dude with the Camaro uh, can't drive in the middle of the city because he always has and he always will. Um, and so a lot of the efficiencies that come from a, a top-down organized approach um, which might be possible in a different sort of country. Uh, well, I don't think they'll be available to us here.
0: Right. Um, Daniel Matthews wants to know about parking, and uh, he 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 kind of argues that like, hey, the the battle uh, the New Urbanists is waging have not been won. We're we're still requiring parking all over the place, and it's funny because I was in New York last year walking around with <coughs> Ian Rasmussen. Uh, one of our our mutual friends, Ian, who does uh, legal work in New York, and he was pointing out to me all the parking that was required in Manhattan. I mean, it is in like the middle of the densest spot uh, in the country because of minimum parking requirements. So, here's Daniel's question: What is the best practical argument to persuade planning and zoning boards to accept variances which reduce parking requirements? And I, I guess I'll take that a step further. Is that a waste of time to, to try to get variances? I mean, what, how should we be approaching parking minimum parking standards? What's the, what's the Zen point we push on to get changes there?
1: Um, I think the practical conversation to have is to understand that developers know what they can sell and they know what they can finance. Um, I think the real challenge technically is convincing the developers, frankly, to reduce their parking requirements, but the conversation to have with cities is that if a developer shows up and has confidence that they do not have any need to build parking or they want to build less parking, um, that you know they're they're investing a lot of money and uh, other people's money that they're on the you know they're on the line for um, based upon a confidence, a very well studied confidence about about you know their market. Um, the other thing, of course, is to is to understand that, um, the market has all different segments in it and particularly in larger cities, even if most people in that city are driving, there's a segment probably unserved by real estate developers that, that doesn't want to drive and that they'll be drawn to these projects. It's a, a interesting thought experiment, but if you build two buildings in the same city and one provides, um, couple parking spaces per unit, and the other provides zero parking spaces per unit. Um, What's going to happen at these two buildings? And what's funny is it's usually the neighbors who are fighting for the new developments to have a lot of parking in them, right? Right. That's usually what happens. It's the neighbors who say, you can't let that developer have no parking because his his tenants are going to burden my streets. Well, what happens in that thought experiment is that when you, build the park, when you build the apartment house with parking, everyone comes, people who own cars choose to live in that apartment house. And then they're right. probably trying to park on street because they don't want to have to get it in and out of the basement all the time. At least during the day, they're parking it on street and they're fighting you for your street space. And they're right. adding congestion to your streets. If you build no parking, the people who choose to live in that building are going to be the people who already don't have cars. They're going to self-select to be in a place where they're not paying for cars. Um, and they won't be competing with you for parking or for driving, right? Right. But, but what that all gets to is that the biggest challenge uh, is the neighbors. And um, that's where I have something that I call a parking preservation plan. I don't do it because I don't, I'm bored by that kind of work. But um, I've always believed that the right way to get this stuff done in neighborhoods before you do a, a planning plan you know, for any new development is to start by doing a parking preservation plan and take advantage of all these tools that, for example, we used in Washington, DC, there's parking permit programs where, you know, you can buy a permit for X amount of dollars and we're not going to give any more out. And the developer agrees that, um, his, his or her tenants can't have, um, parking permits. Uh, you can even write it into leases. Say you know, if you lease here, you may not own a car and that's a, that's a function of your lease. Um, but the, the, um, you know, the biggest practical hurdle then is doing something to ensure the neighbors that they're on street parking, which which they just they've gotten so used to they can't live without um, in their minds. Uh, but I've been there. I, I know that feeling and it's very real um, that that won't be threatened.
0: We've got 51 questions left and, and three minutes So I'm going to go rapid fire. No, I'm just kidding. I'm happy Um, to,
1: I'm happy to go over a little bit. (laughs) uh,
0: Well, I I can't go over. I'm in the recording studio and and we're supposed to start here at at like five after I you're generous and I really appreciate that. I want to ask, um, we, we, you've mentioned, we, we've mentioned New York, DC. A, A lot of your work has been in, smaller places i mean we talked about oklahoma city but i know you were in driggs idaho which is a place i've been uh as well uh now we're small town now we're small town america so I I a last question here and then i want to ask you about your book and a couple other this, like s- housekeeping things um beth garrett one of our one of our members uh is asking about small towns and and she's got a longer question here i'm going to try to summarize it uh she says in small towns a lot of stuff is just set up to perpetuate uh, the worst kind of development we 've got the zoning codes we 've got the planning or we got you know the the staff planner is someone who maybe has not been to the the, the new urbanist uh you know congress and and ingested all this stuff uh, it, when you go into a small town where do you start where, how do you How do you get started and i 'm going to throw this in, Jeff, as like a personal thing for me, I feel like small towns. you know, we talk about the ship going towards the iceberg and how hard it is to change it in a small town. Like it, you you can have a big effect. You can change things really quickly, but it almost seems like sometimes it's harder to change things in a small town, uh, you know, because everybody knows everybody and, and it's just, there's more.
1: That's why you still need someone from outside. Right. Well, Talk
0: about this. How do you, how do you change things in a small town environment? Well,
1: I do a ton of work in, in small towns. Um, And, you know, in fact, I'd say my practice is more focused on those places that aren't entirely up on best practices. You know, they're never going to hire me in New York City or, frankly, probably in D.C. Um, But most of my work is in cities that really want to catch up. And some of those are quite small. Um, The real challenge, if you're talking about walkability and the quality of life that walkability will give you, um, the real challenge is finding the, the limited part of town where that's possible. And if the community was developed principally after 1930 and doesn't really have anything but auto-centric development, then there's almost no chance of that. Unless, you know, you know, they tried to hire me in Snowmass and I said, I don't know how I can help you, do you? And they never wrote back. Um, but <laughs> the, the, you know, the, the, the challenge is like a place like Tigard, Oregon, which is a suburb of Portland. You go there and you're like, what do you do here? And then you realize there's an old main street that they forgot about that's right. sitting there and it's half empty, but half not. And frankly, by just focusing on those three blocks and putting everything you got, you know, into making something that's as perfect as you can and then expanding outward from there. Um, that's always been my focus. But just to give one example, I was invited to speak and, and give a little memo, just a memo. Yeah. You know, they didn't, they didn't have the capacity to pay for a big plan. And I understand um, in a town called Nuego, Michigan, uh, about three months ago. And I went there and found that their main street, which happens to be a state highway, their main street was suffering. You could only park on one side of the street and it was these wide lanes and trucks are barreling through logging trucks and everything else. And one side of the sidewalk, one sidewalk is completely unprotected from these logging trucks because you can only park on one side of the street, but the street had room for parking on both sides. Just the, the state highway had made the lanes too wide. Yeah. And, um, and I explained this to them and I gave them all the data about 10 and 11 foot lanes versus 12 and 13, 14 foot lanes. Uh, and they called them the DOT and we met. Um, and within six months that will be fixed wow. and they'll have a two-sided, they'll have a two-sided parking main street. And that's about one of five things that we, that we figured out all, yeah. you know, mostly to do with just right-sizing the lanes and right sizing the parking if there's too much room turn the parking to an angle just so the driving lanes aren't so fast you know adding bicycle facilities and and you know these are easy things that you can do just with paint you don't even need to, to rebuild and and so you know i always start with the, the main street but then the street not just the main street but what what's the configuration of the street and even if it's even if it's, if it's a state that's in charge of the road That, you know, if it's got 14-foot lanes, they'll accept 11-foot lanes. You want 10, you won't get 10, but you'll get 11. So there's always little things to do like that.
0: You're going to be in Savannah for the CNU. Correct. uh, Coming up here. Uh, People can find out about that at cnu.org. Jeff will be there. I'll be there. Uh, Going to be a ton of people. Are you uh, doing any presentations there that you know of yet?
1: Yes. I forget exactly what. Um, but I know that one thing I'm doing is introducing my friend, the folk singer, Dara Williams, who I convinced to come. Okay. There you go. I I convinced her to come uh, to CNU. She has a book, uh, what I learned in a thousand towns. She's become a, a bit of a city planner as a hobby. Um, so I get to introduce her to the audience. A lot of whom will already know and love her. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I'm giving some other plenary, but I forget what it is.
0: Well, I'll make sure and, and be there when you do. And I'll, I might have to interview her. That sounds like a fascinating book, too.
1: Um, my main, your, your audience may not be that interested in this, Chuck, but my main goal for CNU is to be one of the judges in your trivia contest. <laughs>
0: in the debate. debates? You want to be yeah. a, a debate judge? Well, who do. do we, who do we nix, then? Do we get rid of Andre's? Um,
1: I just want to sit in and see how it goes. I'm not sure if my sense of humor is quick enough, but I want to give it a try.
0: <laughs> that is becoming a, a a a can't miss event, isn't it?
1: I always uh, enjoy it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, you uh, you have uh, a book coming out. Then uh, does it have a title yet?
1: Yeah. So so my book, which is coming out in the fall, mm-hmm. so it's a little a little uh, early to to plug it. But it's very much on my mind because I just finished the manuscript. It's with Island Press. It's going to be their lead book of the fall yep. uh, of all their titles. Um, it's called Walkable City Rules, 101 Steps to Making Better Places. Um, and the, the elevator pitch basically is that, you know, Walkable City was great for getting people excited and, and inspired to make changes. But this is really the toolkit you need to, to do it. So it, it weaponizes Walkable City.
0: Are we gonna are we gonna be able to do a, an interview then that doesn't get zapped into the ether uh, this fall when that comes out? Is that part of the the tour there?
1: If you'll if you'll accept me, I would love to do that.
0: I would love it. Let's plan on it. Um, okay. people can people can find you at jeffspec.com. Is that the website?
1: Yes. Okay.
0: My friend, I'm I'm uh, I'm honored that you would take the time and, and do this with us uh we had a couple hundred people on here uh being able to enjoy we're going to share it also so thousands of other people will get to uh to hear your wisdom I, I always uh enjoy talking to you and learn something and i just say we got to play pool again that was one of the funnest nights i ever had we'll find the spot in <laughs> the, let's do it
1: all right all right thanks so much for for asking and it's always a pleasure chet
0: thank you so much and thanks for all you do yeah. take care Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to going bankrupt.
1: Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating.